If you would, please take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah chapter 63. Isaiah chapter 63, verses 7 through 19. In case you're wondering, sometimes I break from whatever series we're doing to do something more focused on Palm Sunday or Easter and whatnot. Um, long story short, peeking ahead at Isaiah 64, it seemed like an appropriate passage for Easter Sunday. So we're sticking with Isaiah. We've been in it a while and the end is, is near. So um, it's, it's, you can actually see it. But um, with that, Isaiah 63 verses 7 through 19. Hear now the holy inerrant word of our Lord. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us in the great goodness to the house of Israel, that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, surely they are my people, <clears throat> children who will not deal falsely. And he became their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name? who led them through the depths like a horse in the desert. They did not stumble like livestock that go down into the valley. The spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. Look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation. Where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. For you are our father, though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our Father. Our Redeemer from of old is your name. O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? Remember for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. Your holy people held possession for a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. That sends the reading of God's word. Grass withers, flower fades. The word of our God will stand forever. Let's ask his blessing now as we consider his word. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we come before you and we need your help. We need your help to hear your word. Give us ears to hear all that you have to say to us. We need help as well to respond to your word. Be with us. Build us up. Give us your grace that we might hear and do what you've called us to by the power of your Savior and who's your son, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. God is faithful, so ask him to be faithful. God is good, so ask him to show you his goodness. God is loving, so ask him to show you his love. That's what this passage is telling us, modeling for us. Two weeks ago, we saw the Lord, our Redeemer and avenger in blood-stained clothes, striking down our enemies, his enemies. But that was a vision of the future, the final day. 
was not present day for Isaiah and his people. No, present day looked something like exile, estrangement from the promised land and from the God of promise. They were struck down but not destroyed. You might say their souls were downcast and they needed Emmanuel to be with them right now. And so now Isaiah shows them how to ask for that, how to ask, seek, and knock so that the door might be open, so that God might come into their presence right now. It starts by putting the Lord to remembrance, as we saw in Isaiah 62, verse 6. It starts by talking to God about God, as someone says, talking to the Lord about the Lord. You might notice Isaiah uses the Lord in, in small caps, as they say, approximately five times in this passage. It's the word we sometimes say Yahweh or Jehovah, the name revealed at the burning bush. I am who I am, God said to Moses. I am self-existent. I don't need your help to save you, but I will use you in that process, Moses. I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. I will be all that my weary people need me to be. That's the idea. So if you're weary, listen up. You may need this encouragement just as much as Isaiah's exiled audience did. And if you're not weary, stop kidding yourself. It's not like I'm making you raise your hand. If you're not weary, listen up as well. Because whether you think you are or not, you might be soon. And when you become weary, if you're not already, you'll want to remember this. Neither our sin nor our suffering can separate us from God's steadfast love. So we should cry out until we taste and see his goodness. That's what Isaiah models for us. Three paragraphs, three points this morning. The first one, the Lord remains faithful to his covenant people in all their afflictions. The Lord remains faithful to his covenant people in all their afflictions. Verses 7 through 9. There's a loaded term here in verse 7, but it's a good thing. If you don't know what that phrase means, Wikipedia says it is rhetoric or speech used to influence an audience by using words and phrases with strong connotations. Words or phrases like bureaucrat or elitist or Nazi, words that provoke strong emotional reactions, including positive ones, positive emotional responses, loaded terms like success, happy, Hardworking, powerful. See, that's what Isaiah's doing. He's using five words or two words used five times. They come loaded with covenant implications in verse 7. Words loaded with faithfulness and the loyalty of the Lord. You see it in verse 7 again. Let's read it. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us in the great goodness to the house of Israel that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. Again, five words that are loaded in a good way, or two words that he uses a total of five times. First, he says, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord. Isaiah begins and ends verse 7 with steadfast love, which is one word in Hebrew. It's hesed. If you cough up a hairball when you say it, you're pronouncing it right. It's a word so packed with meaning that it usually takes two English words to do the meaning justice because hesed is not just love, it's steadfast love. It's 
loyal love. It's not just mercy, it's forever mercy. It's not just faithfulness, it's covenant faithfulness. Not just loyalty, but covenant loyalty. You get the idea. The word, it comes loaded with these ideas that God is a covenant God who condescends to his people, their understanding, a covenant God who cannot lie, who still makes promises to his people to show that those promises are doubly secure. If you like to wear a belt with your suspenders, then this is the God for you. He does not despise your doubts. No, he just doubles down on his promises. He's a God of hesed, of steadfast love, more predictable than a cat coughing up a hairball, more certain than death and taxes, doubly secure in all that he says. And whose steadfast love are we talking about? Well, it's the Lord's. Again, you see that name in small caps. You see it three times in the first three lines of verse 7. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord. The praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us. It's the word that we talked about earlier, Yahweh or Jehovah. I am who I am, or I will be what I will be. It's a special name. The Lord's so-called covenant name, which he only revealed to his covenant people. Again, it's loaded with covenant implications because it's revealed to Moses just a few chapters before God redeems Israel and then makes a new covenant with them on Sinai. And before it's revealed, Exodus 2 seems to say that God remembers his previous covenant and acts accordingly. In other words, the Lord, he's the Lord of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the God who promised a redeemer to Adam, the God who promised a blessed seed to Abraham, a dynasty to David and more. He's faithful to his people in so many ways, which is why verse 7 ends with the, the abundance of your steadfast love. And oh, we haven't even covered all the other loaded words like granted and goodness and compassion from verse 7, but we have to move on. Verse 8 says, for he said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their savior. God is speaking in human terms. If I am their God, then surely they will be loyal as I am loyal, faithful as I am faithful. Would that happen? Hold that thought. Verse 9, in all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. <clears throat> I once had a professor who said, there are Exodus allusions in this passage. But I know what you're thinking. I see Exodus allusions in my sleep. True, but I really mean it this time. Now, he wasn't talking about this verse, but he could have been. You see, for example, about those afflictions, Exodus 3, verses 7 and 8. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians that to bring them out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And then at the end of the verse where it talks about carrying them, look at Exodus 19:4, where it says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you or carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. I have 
two more of these examples buried in my footnotes. I could keep going. That's not simply because I like the talk. I do. Guilty. My original career path was going to be talking about sports. Instead, I talk about Jesus. Some of you would say I do both. But the reason I always have more to say about this, about any topic, is because the Bible always has more to say about any topic. Always. What else would you expect from a God who is infinite in his perfections? But I will give you one more Exodus illusion. You see that part about the angel of his presence, the second line in verse 9 there? Derek Thomas says it this way, The angel of the Lord is none other than the Lord himself. See Exodus thirty-three twelve. God has guided his people, Thomas says, at every turd in the wilderness and in the wilderness of Babylon, he will do so again. In other words, God's miraculous presence, it led them out of Egypt. It led them through the wilderness, 40 years in the wilderness, and their sandals did not wear out, according to Deuteronomy 29. And Isaiah is confident that God can do miracles once again. Miracles to bring them out of exile, out of Babylon, out of a new wilderness. They were greatly afflicted in the past, but God saved them. And they were greatly afflicted as Isaiah wrote this. But he knew God could save them. Affliction. Is that what you feel right now in any sense? Specifically, do you feel like life is hard? And like you can't think of a single thing you did to make it that way? You know, sometimes our problems are the result of our own bad choices. Hold that thought. But sometimes they aren't. Sometimes God allows hardship for no other reason than that we would realize how much we need him. To teach us the habit of depending on him. I need thee every hour. Oh, I need thee every hour I need thee. Isaiah knows this in his prayer for his benefit and for ours goes something like this. If God was faithful, if he was good, if he was compassionate to save Israel, to redeem them in all their afflictions, then he can save me now in my affliction. Lord of steadfast love, he can lift me up on eagle's wings. He can carry me. He can do it right now. He can pull me up out of the miry clay, set me on the heights, let me soar. As we pray... As we even think about praying, remember this, the Lord remains faithful in all our affliction. And not only that, but also the Lord remains faithful to his covenant people in all their rebellion. That's our second point this morning. The Lord remains faithful to his covenant people in all their rebellion, verses 10 through 14. Now, I mostly use the word affliction to refer to afflictions that aren't directly our fault. The Bible never blames Israel for Pharaoh's oppression, his affliction of Israel, not that I can see. It's not discipline as a result of a specific sin, but it is discipline. It is training. It is training so that they can depend upon God more, so that they can remember his faithfulness in all their afflictions. But you know, we, God's people are not always faithful, are we? We're not always innocent bystanders. We're not always unfortunate victims. Israel certainly wasn't. It's why they were in exile. That's why many 
years before, the people of God had to wander in the wilderness. Look at verse 10. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. When did that happen? What specific story is that talking about? When did it happen? When did it not happen in Israel's history? There are so many examples. Just read Psalm 78 for many of them. But one in particular, Exodus 33. See, in Exodus 32, Ten Commandments are given to Moses up on Mount Sinai. And then down below, Aaron and the people are talking. And they get this bright idea. And they throw some gold into a fire. And voila, out comes a golden calf, as Aaron said. God didn't bother refuting that obvious lie. Instead, God basically told Moses, I'm through with these people. And you see, for most of Isaiah's ministry, God's people felt something similar. That his lack of action, which allowed ungodly foreigners to invade them, made them feel neglected. And of course, the real problem was their neglect of God, their neglect of his laws, their rebellion do you remember how Isaiah starts? So it's been a long time since we've looked at chapter one. I get it. Isaiah one, starting in verse one, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, which he saw concerning Judah in Jerusalem, etc., etc. Verse two, hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. Rebelled, it's the word he uses right from the beginning. What's our biggest problem? Is it all the fallen people in the world out there, all the non-Christians? Is it all the hypocrites who are in the church? Is it all the people who complain about the hypocrites? I think I might have done that two weeks ago, by the way. Or is our biggest problem us, me? Is it my rebellion? Psalm 51, verse 5, David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. You know, I, I really wish I wasn't as foolish and rebellious as Isaiah's original audience. I can't find a Bible verse to support that idea. But somehow God is faithful in spite of my rebellion, just like he was with Israel, just like Isaiah hoped and begged for God to be with him and his Fellow Israelites, some 2,700 years ago, beginning of verse 11, then after the rebellion, after the grieving of the Holy Spirit, verse 11, then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. Again, go back to Exodus 32, the golden calf. Israel has failed miserably. And God told Moses, I'm through with these people, in a manner of speaking. Moses prayed for the people. And he appealed to, to something. He appealed to God's name, to God's reputation. And then God remembered the covenant that he had sworn to his people. Now, on the one hand, we need to understand these are biblical anthropomorphisms, hard word, anthropopathisms. They are ascribing human actions and emotions to the infinite God who never changes. And on the other hand, we need to see in all of this a God who remains faithful, even in our rebellion, even when we are light years away from deserving the least of his mercies. In all our suffering and affliction, the Lord remains faithful. In all our rebellion, 
he also remains faithful. Now, that doesn't mean you can go on sinning forever and ignoring God and it'll all be okay in the end. No, that's not what this teaches. But God does pursue us even in our sin, praise the Lord. As someone I know says, he never lets his children sin successfully. He always convicts us, draws us back. If you look at verses 13 and 14, you'll see Isaiah bring these Exodus allusions to a sort of conclusion. He talks about God's spirit leading them, giving them rest. He led them like a horse running effortlessly through the desert or the wilderness, a deserted place, like livestock that settle in green pastures with milk and honey and more. But you'll notice we skipped a few verses. We barely touched on 11 and 12 and part of 13 in this may bleed into our third point just a bit, but bear with me because what you see is Isaiah asking questions. He's asking questions of God, questions about where God is. He affirms his faithfulness to his covenant people during the Exodus, during the rebellion. They're complaining, they're grumbling, they're idol-making, and more. He affirms God's faithfulness in times past, and then he asks God, where is that same faithfulness now? We'll look at that in detail in a second. But for now, realize this. When we pray, when we think about praying, when we decide not to pray because we feel unworthy for God to hear our prayers, remember this. The Lord remains faithful to his covenant people in all their rebellion, in all their afflictions, the hard things that aren't our fault. He remains faithful in all our rebellion, the hard things that, are our fault. The Lord remains faithful. And if you're one of his sheep who have heard his voice and followed him, realize it's only because he called you in the first place. And if I can bend that analogy a little bit, once he's called, he will never hang up. He will not leave you or forsake you. Jesus ready stands to save you full of pity. Joined with power, as one hymn says. And because he's faithful, it should lead us to cry out to him. That's our third point. The Lord's faithfulness to his covenant people leads them to cry out for tangible deliverance. His faithfulness to his people leads them to cry out for tangible deliverance. I promise we talk about verses 11 through 13. Let's read part of those. Starting in the middle of 11, where is he? Who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit? Who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses? Who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name? Who led them through the depths? Where? Where is he? Where is he who did all these things in the past? Who was so faithful? Again, lots of Exodus allusions going on here. You start, it looks like, with the Red Sea. It might end with the crossing of the Jordan River. That's not Exodus, but it's a continuation of the same story and deliverance into the promised land. But there's another thing going on here, these questions. They might seem inappropriate to us. Maybe we're not so bold to talk to God this way. Maybe we've been beaten down by life, beaten down by bad authority figures. Maybe we've forgotten that God is able to sympathize with our weaknesses, that he was tempted in every way, yet without sin, that he tells us 
in his word to come boldly with confidence to receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Barry Webb says these questions from Isaiah, they're not hostile. They're not arrogant. They're not out of line. This is an Israelite, one of God's firstborn sons, according to Exodus 4, talking to his father. Webb says it this way. These are children's questions expressing penitence, dependence, and trust. They are the questions of prodigals come home, daring to hope that father, simply because that is who he is, will not turn them from his door. He's obviously referring to Luke 15, the prodigal son, the prodigal father who lavishes grace on the wayward, wasteful son the instant he comes home. Reminds me of a story I'd heard another preacher tell. It goes something like this. A daughter had run away from home, made all the kinds of terrible choices that you've heard about before. And eventually she found that unfulfilling. She decided it was time to come home. So she did. She returned to her mother's house. It was in a busy part of town. And she found the door open, unlocked. <laughs> and she was scared. She was worried about her mother because her mother wasn't home. She's more worried about her mother. So she frantically searches for her. When she finally finds her mother, she demands, why was your door unlocked? Why, why was your door open? The mother replied, that door has always been open ever since the day you left. Is that story true? I don't know. I couldn't track down the details or the source. But don't you want it to be true? And you know why you want it to be true? Because you do have a heavenly father who's just like that, ready to receive you, even when you don't deserve it. And if you realize that your heavenly father, that he is like that, that gracious, that loving, that forgiving, you would run to him. You would beg for his presence, his comfort, his mercy. You would give him no rest, as Isaiah 62 says, until he showed up. You would pray something like this. Verse 15, look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation, where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. For you are our father. Though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our father. Our redeemer from of old is your name. What's verse 16 mean? It probably means that Israel doesn't look like Israel anymore. Oh, the true Israel who are circumcised in the heart, who truly trust in their loving father, they wouldn't recognize Isaiah's rebellious audience. Neither would Abraham, whose faith was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham, who would, he wouldn't recognize this people, this people who walk by sight, who despise walking by faith, who only trust what they can see right in front of them. They're not Abraham's children, are they? God says they are. God says they're my children, even though they don't deserve it. But of course, his children at this point, they're confused. They're still in exile. They're still suffering. And some of it's their fault. Isaiah goes on, verse 17, O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? 
return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage, your holy people held possession for a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. Again, these questions and pleas, they're so direct. Daring God to be God, to be true to his promises, it may feel wrong. It may feel disrespectful, irreverent to say this. Consider the words of this author. Intercession, this type of prayer. Intercession glorifies God because it is expression of utter dependence on him. It recognizes that we need to be delivered as much from ourselves as from our enemies. Another author says, God's sovereignty, it should never lead us to complacency or laziness. No, it should always lead us to attempt great things for God and to expect great things from God, as William Carey said. Think of the scene. Isaiah, <clears throat> Isaiah sees garbage all around him, but he sees the glory of God promised in the future. He sees all the promises of God. And in the present day, he sees a sanctuary that's trampled down, verse 18, a promised land that's possessed by others, not the people of the promise. And because he knew the promise, he only knew one way to pray. God, make your promise come true. Look down and see, return. Do what you've done before, O oh God. Break into the here and now. Move heaven and earth to help us, our Father in heaven. Isaiah begged for tangible signs of God's deliverance because he believed that that was exactly what God had promised. And that's still true today. God still promises heavenly cities, gardens, feasts, and other things. Now, some of that, yes, is far off. But he also tells us to taste and see that God is good. And if he's commanded us to taste and see, then there must be something to taste and see. Some tangible sign, tangible reminder of all that he's promised us. Now we'll taste one of those in a minute. A tangible reminder of his body broken, his blood shed, the gospel to our senses, as someone said. But don't let that be the last time you taste and see that God is good. Don't let that stop you from asking for more, more occasions for God to fulfill his promises to his people. Isaiah 62 verses 6 and 7 says, You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem, and makes it a praise in the earth. Give him no rest. Keep crying out until you see all of his promises come true. He is good. He is faithful. He is loving. So ask him to show you that. Ask him to show you his goodness, his faithfulness, his love. Let's pray. Oh God, our help in ages past, be our hope for years to come. Be our guide through all the storms and dangers that life throws at us. Remind us that you are our refuge, our safe place. God, be good to us, not because we deserve it, not because we promise to try harder, but because we, we pray to a good and gracious Savior, and we pray in his name. Amen.